Good morning. For those of you fortunate enough not to know me, my name is Ruben, and I'd like to welcome you to chapel this morning, uh, on this Friday. Oh man, it's been a week since spring break already. Okay. Um, I'd also like to welcome the alumni board who's on campus this morning, and uh, I'd like to briefly bring to you two uh, scripture readings. The first is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brother, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this from Genesis chapter 1. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God saw that all he had made, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, before we have uh, some of our musicians up here with some tunes, I would like to light the Christ lamp and also invite you to pause for a moment of silence in honor of Millicent Mores, the Goshen Division of Adult and External Studies student who was killed earlier this week. And now for a few hymns. You could all please turn to sing the journey number four, You've Got a Place. And stand up, please.
Next, please turn to your hymnal, number 414. God who stretched the spangled heavens in Sing the journey number 27, God of the Bible. Sunrise. 
must carry, shining and certain, through all our turmoil, terror, and loss, holding us gladly one to the other, till our world changes, facing the And now, live from Goshen College, I would like to welcome President Jim Brenneman on the beauty of imperfection. Thank you, Ruben. <clears throat> First of all, I want to extend my condolences to the, the friends and family of Millicent, who are, uh, some of you know, knew her, even though she's part of our adult programs. She's part of our family and will be missed. I'd also like to welcome you all back from spring break. It's nice to see your faces again. I haven't had a chance to welcome you formally, so welcome back. Um, I was here all week, but uh, never mind that. Uh, it is good to see you back. I'd like to speak this morning on a subject that's been taking its toll on college students these days, but has been around in the Mennonite tradition for at least 500 years. I'll begin with the story of uh, a young woman named Hanny Lerner. She's a young, hip entrepreneur in New York City who's, who's making her way in furniture design, of all things. A remarkable young woman by all accounts, and she tells an experience of her senior year, her last semester of uh, college, where some of you are today, and I look forward in about seven weeks when I hand you your diplomas. Her professor called her into his office, and this was for her Asian business class, and he gave her the final exam, and on it there was a big fat A minus. Now he could have stretched it a bit, he said, and given her an A. It was sort of a judgment call, but he would have had to do that, you know, stretch it a little bit more than he could. And in course of explaining the grade, because he knew who she was and how important that was to her, he cared about her and he wanted her to know that uh, she uh, didn't have to be perfect, that she didn't have to think that somehow she was less smart, less capable, or less successful because this was the first time in her life she didn't have a 4.0 she wouldn't graduate with. She says, I graduated with a 3.98 GPA, and I was absolutely devastated. It took me several months and two City University of New York appeals to get over it. Now, some of you also know Emma Watson, who played Hermione in the Harry Potter series, who went to Brown University, and, and she, she left a couple of years ago, and I think she's going back uh, next year or something, but she, she actually made the comment, because she was a perfectionist, she dropped out because she didn't want to imagine herself getting an A minus, a B, or maybe even a C in her life. Have any of you ever felt like Hanny or Hermione, or Emma Watson, I guess, in this case. But she was a lot like that in, in the uh, Harry Potter movies, too, wasn't she? 
If studies of college students over the last three decades are correct, a good third of you, and I'd say maybe even closer to a half, and maybe more in a place like Goshen College that, that has so many of very bright, we're among the elite college universities in the country, many of you tend to be perfectionists in some areas of your lives. All of you are bombarded constantly with a thousand ads, hundreds of apps, constant mental harassment about being more perfect. Type in quest for, for the perfect into Google and you'll get lists of invitations to become perfect. One can quest for the perfect boyfriend or girlfriend to become the perfect couple. You can quest for the perfect body and yes, for the very specific perfect body part. You can quest for a perfect lawn, a perfect job, a perfect piece of toast, and even to become the perfect atheist, of all things. I just downloaded an app this weekend called Superhuman. I don't know if any of you have the Superhuman app. It summarizes, in my opinion, the mantra that most all of us have been told or have heard in one form or another since birth, practice makes perfect. Yet we know nobody's perfect. Still, the app promises through a series of practices to increase our focus, our strength, and our stamina to reach the mountaintop. It's a great game if you want to be perfect. All this, it says, to make us superhuman. As one reviewer of the app noted this past weekend in the New York Times, at least they had the decency not to call it the Ubermensch app. You know that phrase that Hitler used in describing his goal of the German Aryan superhuman beings, the super race? If all this pressure to be free from flaws and defects weren't enough, along comes Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, upping the ante still even further. He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Perfect. Really, Jesus? Be perfect as God in heaven is perfect? Like we need that tape going around in our minds day in and day out, condemning us for not shedding those extra pounds, for getting the A minus or B plus instead of the A, for messing up, for failing to live up to that pure moral commitments because we can't quite always do it all the time in every moment, be perfect? Well, if Catholics suffer from Catholic guilt and Presbyterians from doing things decently in order, you know, Presbyterians have the book of the order, they call it, book of order, many Mennonites tend to suffer from the curse of perfectionism. 500 years worth, the oldest confession in the Mennonite church seems to heighten the ethical pressure of, on Christians by arguing that the church, in contrast to the state, lives under what is called the perfection of Christ, thus raising the lifestyle bar extremely high. This old confession seems to lump everyone in two groups in binary opposition to the other. Uh, to each other. We have the church and we have the state. We have believers and unbelievers. We have good and evil. We have light and darkness. We have secular worldly folks and unworldly uh, 
pious folks. Those who live under the per perfection of Christ, this confession says, were expected to ban those who fell from the perfection of Christ. Though the Mennonite Church, thankfully, has updated its confessions regularly over the years and softened its stance on the use of the ban, the spiritual DNA of ethical perfectionism still haunts Mennonites and, by the way, many, many other Christian traditions today as well. In fact, Dr. John Lawrence Burkholder, in his Harvard dissertation, he was, a, he was the president when I was here at Goshen many years ago, but back when he was young, he wrote a dissertation at Harvard that he entitled The Limits of Perfection in order to provide some relief after 500 years of trying to be perfect. That's why we need each other in some ways. We need the Lutherans who emphasize grace of God. We need the Pentecostals and the Charismatics who like to express themselves and express the spirit-filled life and joy and jumping around and even in church. Being perfect like God is perfect or living in the perfection of Christ as history has sometimes defined expectations is a high standard to cope with. It's almost enough to make us throw up our hands in defeat ahead of time, or not even try. If being perfect is the goal, then despair, shame, or self-righteousness, or all of the above, is sure to be the outcome. And so it is. Tons of studies show that despair, and depression, and shame, and eating disorders, and low self-esteem, and low-grade anxiety, hovers over an increasingly greater number of college students than ever before, in part because of the pressures of perfectionism. It's also why compromise seems to be lacking in Mennonite historic vocabulary, just as it is in Congress today. I seriously doubt what some biblical commentators have argued that Jesus was simply throwing up the impossible command just to keep us humble, in our place, and doomed and depressed without God's intervention. It just seems out of character to me for Jesus to be in the same business as our sometimes cruel superego, that internal taskmaster that's constantly harping, it's just not good enough. You just aren't good enough. Be perfect. A perfectionist once said in a great burst of Euclidean reasoning, well, he said, if I'm a nobody and nobody's perfect, then I must be perfect. You get the A equals B, B equals, oh, never mind. That was just after he wondered aloud if the word anal retentive had a hyphen in it or not. It's hard trying to be perfect, isn't it? Especially to be perfect as God is perfect. So, when I started pulling on this godly perfection thread in its full biblical context, I discovered that many of our prior understandings of God's perfection unravels. In fact, God's perfection became even more beautifully perfect to me, and believe it or not, more attainable. I discovered that nowhere in the Older Testament, that was Jesus' Bible, to which he referred to, does the word translated in Jesus' statement as perfect here 
in the Hebrew, it's tamim, does it ever refer to God per se? The God of Israel is nowhere qualified as being perfect in nature. Scripture says things like God's work is perfect or God's way is perfect or the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. In the Bible, God is the norm of all definitions of perfection, not a standard outside of God. It's not as if there's this mathematical standard of perfection that somehow God has to live up to. No, the definition of perfection is subsumed under God, the definer of all things perfect. And God's perfection is surprisingly quite different than the cold, rational, abstract, static, immutable, never-changing standard of perfection of some of the Greek views of perfection or mathematical views of perfection that we're always trying to live up to and failing miserably. The word perfect, tamim, literally and simply means to be whole, to be complete, to be fulfilled. It doesn't mean to be flawless. Perfection is a dynamic relational concept in the Bible. The word is primarily used to refer to how God acts or relates to this world and toward us. God relates to us perfectly, completely, wholly. God gives God's full, complete, and undivided attention to us. God is fully present and completely ready to save us, to forgive us, to send the rain on the just and on the unjust, as it says in the text. God is perfect in God's unalterable, unfailing love and mercy toward us. Far from unchanging, unyielding, immutable conception of the perfectly flawless nature of God that most of our less-than-biblical creeds subscribe to, God's perfection lies in God's love, which sometimes requires God to change course, like any good parent, to become mutable, to show compassion, to show even a, a whole bunch of times the language in Older Testament says God repents. And even the translators don't like to use the word repent, even though when they speak of it as humans doing it, they translate it repent, when it comes to God, you notice when you're reading your English, they'll always say God relented. They want to make that difference. No, God changes God's mind sometimes in relationship to how we respond to God, whether in repentance or whether we ask God to help us, like any good parent would with their child, let's say. To describe God as less than perfect in essence is, define, is to define perfection more holistically. Perfection by God's definition means that God is affected by our cries for mercy. God is perfectly unchanging in God's loving and gracious actions. God is perfectly uncompromising in the lengths God will go to save us even if that means changing and becoming a lot like us, God in Christ dying on the cross for us. That's a big leap, a big change. From the Bible's point of view, to be affected by others, to interact genuinely, to sacrificially love others, even if it means we fall short of the ideal, 
These are not signs of imperfection or mediocrity. Not in God, so not in us either. To love others, to love ourselves, to show mercy to others, to be merciful to ourselves, is to be whole, complete, perfect, as God is perfect. What a relief. Most perfectionists are pretty tightly wound. Like the t-shirt I once saw someone wearing that said, being perfect is stressful, so get out of my face. So I'm here with some good news of grace this morning to anyone and everyone who is ashamed by your imperfections. Truth be told, there's a big, big, big difference between excellence and perfection. Miriam Adderholt, a psychology instructor at Davidson Community College in North Carolina, the author of Perfectionism, What's Bad About Being Too Good, says simply, excellence involves enjoying what you are doing, feeling good about what you've learned, and developing confidence because of the discipline that you've undertaken to get there. Perfectionism, on the other hand, she says, involves feeling bad about a 98 and always finding mistakes no matter how well you're doing. The child who misspells one word out of the thousands of a rightly spelled words in the National Spelling Bee is an excellent learner, not perfect, and has no reason to feel ashamed or unworthy. Excellence, not perfection, is perfectly good enough. Sadly, images of the perfect abs or perfect body shapes often bring feelings of shame, especially in college students, the studies say, over against our own physical imperfections. In Taoism and Zen, by contrast, beauty is sometimes described as a balance between what is simple and plain, that's called wabi, and what is worn and old, which is sabi, wabi-sabi. Leonard Koren, author of Wabi Sabi for Artists, Designers, Poets, and Philosophers, defines such an aesthetic as, here's a quote, a beauty, of, a beauty of all things imperfect, impermanent, and incomplete. It's the beauty of things modest and humble. It's the beauty of things unconventionable. It's like the old upholstered chair my dad sat on to read his Bible and drink his coffee every morning that chair had wabi-sabi. There was something about that chair, perfectly worn and beautiful, as it sat for a long, long time in our house after my dad died, almost like an art piece hung on the floor. In some faith traditions, the weaver purposely makes a tiny error in the blanket or rug or woven shawl to enhance its character in beauty. That's wabi-sabi. Professor John D. Roth, just in convocation on Monday, described the wabi-sabi aesthetic of broken, imperfect lives of Christian martyrs. In them, he said, we behold the beauty of holiness. If you're a procrastinator, as many perfectionists tend to be, if you often postpone getting something done or not doing it at all, rather than doing it imperfectly, remember godly imperfection is better than getting the job done perfectly. Kathleen Norris, in her book, The Cloister Walk, suggests that the whole person, a complete person, 
A perfect person never really finishes anything completely, just like life itself. Kathleen tries her best not to let her fear of writing the perfect, flawless sentence to keep her from writing nothing at all. And of course, she's become one of the great writers. She says, start, try, write. After all, as William Sapphire, the great uh, speechwriter, once said, only in grammar can you be more than perfect, namely pluperfect, for those of you who need grammar. Could it be that the lesson of perfection in scripture is that we are more whole, we are more complete when we are good but imperfect? Wabi-sabi? In the Genesis story, when God created the world, six times God steps back and says, it is good. And then when he creates the first humans in the story, he steps back and says, wow, it's very good. Not once does the creator of the whole universe step back and go, wow, that's perfect. In short, if being imperfect means loving others more, showing mercy to the undeserving, being kinder and gentler to ourselves in all our imperfections, being challenged by life's unfulfilled goals, being moved by injustice and affected by sorrow, changing our minds for the sake of love, dying so others can live, then wabi-sabi, God calls us to be imperfect as God is imperfect. Take notice. Embedded in the word imperfect are two words. What are they? I'm perfect. Being lovingly imperfect may be one of the best ways of living up to Christ's call for us to be perfect as God in heaven is perfect. And that, my dear students, is perfectly good enough. So after a song, I want us all to take the rest of the semester, take it with all the excellence that you're capable of, but also with all your splendid wabi-sabi imperfections, and it'll be good enough. Thank you. Please stand and join us in hymnal worship book 427. <laughs> Let's go. 